0: A few years ago, I was in the Holy Land, and I met up with a friend who's an antiquities dealer there, and he said, hey, I have a a gift for you. He handed me one of those poster tubes, so I opened it up, and it is a a fragment or like a leather sheet with Hebrew writing on it. He said, this is a, a portion of a Hebrew scroll that's 400 years old, came from a synagogue in Egypt. I said, man, I can't accept that. I mean, this is way too valuable. Uh, this, is, this is, I can't do this. And he said, no, there's two things you need to know. He said, first of all, the nation of Israel frowns on uh, selling copies of the Torah. So I can't really sell it. I want to gift it to you. And he said, second of all, you know, not to minimize the gift, but he said, 400 years is not that old. He said, my house is older than 400 years. So I said, well, thank you. So I brought it home. It's still a precious gift to me. And so uh, I, I wasn't sure exactly what the text was, but it was beautiful, and, and uh, I, I took some Hebrew Hebrew in seminary, but I I really never took the time to kind of read through. I wanted to know where it was in, in the text or what text it was, but I had it framed and hung in my office. And it sat there for about three years and uh, I was in Israel again another time with a friend of mine who's a pastor and I was telling the story. Man, one one time I was here and this friend of mine gave me this Hebrew scroll and it's hanging in my office. He said, what text? I said, you know, I never have done the research to find out. He said, well, I have a friend that goes to my church who's a Hebrew scholar. I mean, if you ever want to snap a picture and send it to me, he can tell you. And so uh, so I I get home and I remember that. So I sent him a picture. I said, hey, can you show it to your friend? He said, sure, he's with me now. And he said, well, for starters, it's upside down. So, I'm like, well, that's embarrassing. For 3 years. So, I want you to know I really did go to seminary, but if you want to leave now, I understand. I've never shared that publicly except that I thought, well, it's so fitting as I think about the passage, because a lot of times we, we have this precious truth before us, and when we take a really close look at it, they're completely, our, our priorities and our ideas are completely upside down, and Jesus has this way in his parables of revealing some things about how we're looking at life that's so different from the way it ought to be, and as we look through the parables of Jesus in the book of Luke, I want us to land today in Luke chapter 14. Would you look there with me right now? The 14th chapter of the book of Luke, and we're going to talk about kingdom priorities. Kingdom priorities. Now, I need to give you some context and sort of paraphrase the first part of this for the sake of time, kind of let you know what's going on. Jesus has been invited to a banquet with a number of Pharisees on the Sabbath. And so they're not just wanting to hang out with Jesus. It becomes clear that they're, they're just wanting to look closely at him. So they've invited him to this meal and they're just checking out Jesus. They're, they're wanting to maybe trap him or find out some things about him. And in fact... There happens to be a lame man who comes into the place where the banquet's was happening. You think that was really an accident? I mean, they have the who's who around the table, people who want to be with Jesus, to, so they can test him. And oh, there just happens to be a lame man. It happens to be the Sabbath, and so here he comes. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on because he he goes ahead and says what they're thinking. He says, "Is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath?" You know, they were thinking, "Yeah, that's that's what we were thinking." What do you think? And Jesus is having nothing of their shenanigans at all. He heals the man. And then he says to them something along the lines of, listen, if you had an ox who was trapped in a ditch, how many of you would just leave it there on the Sabbath? No, you'd rescue it. So he, he's actually pointing back to Deuteronomy law says this is what you're going to do. And just traps them. So just a side note, it's not the message, but if you're going to have an intellectual debate with somebody, probably don't want to choose the son of God to do that. All right? <laughs> Didn't go well. And so then he begins to teach them. Remember, they're at a banquet, and he says, listen, when you recline at the table, you come to a banquet, in those days it was common for the most important people to sit the closest to the host. And he said, don't don't assume that you're supposed to be the most powerful and most important and sit up close. Sit at the end of the table. You can always be invited back up, but how embarrassing if you have to be pushed back because somebody more important comes. He's saying, you need to reevaluate how you think about power. And then he tells them further down in verse 13 how when they host a banquet, they should invite the ones who are seen as Less powerful. Look at verse 13. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, bl- lame, or blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So he's saying, listen, you need to think differently about power and change your perspective here. And then he talks about the resurrection of the righteous, which leads to the next question. So it's not unusual. Remember, they've been sitting with Jesus here. They've witnessed the healing on the Sabbath. They're, they're t- testing him. And so it probably makes sense that the next thing comes up. This man says something in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to them, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, and he's just not talking about having a meal in the kingdom. He's talking about the last days, and he's talking about some prophecies they would have known, like Isaiah twenty-five six, that there is going to be a banquet with Messiah uh, when he returns. So they're looking forward to that time together. So he's he's saying something that would be natural, but in the context here, he's also establishing conversation to probably test Jesus again to see what he's going to say. How do you feel about this banquet, and and uh, and how do you feel about the Messiah? So they think they've got Jesus, and Jesus proceeds to tell them a parable that has everything to do with that banquet. If you look closely at what Jesus says next, you're going to find he reveals a great deal about priorities in the kingdom of God. In essence, he's saying, okay, you want to talk about the kingdom? I'll talk about the kingdom, but you need to know that your picture of how this is going to go is so completely upside down. So let's talk priorities. When we think about priorities, I don't want you to think so much about, oh, I need to make a priority list and think about that. I I want you to think about your core priorities, like what really motivates you, drives you. When you get up in the morning, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What, What do you think about? What do you dwell on? When you go to bed at night, when you shut off the light, what are you thinking about, right? When you think about those things that you say yes to at the expense of everything else, like I'll clear the calendar if that opportunity comes, that tells you your real priorities, right? Jesus is talking about that stuff. And he's going to share with us a different way of looking at our priorities in light of three essential truths. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and I don't normally do this. I'm just going to give them to you at the front. And then we'll explain how he outlines these. Because Jesus tells us three truths about our priorities. First of all, he shares an unbeatable invitation. He shares some absurd alternatives. And then he shares amazing grace. An unbeatable invitation some absurd alternatives, and then he talks about amazing grace. So let's talk about this unbeatable invitation. Listen, the offer to enjoy Christ and walk with him and know him will never be matched. You're not going to get a greater invitation than what God has offered us in the Christian life. Look down at verses 16 and 17. Then he told him, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because now everything everything is now ready. In order to really appreciate this, we need to view it, uh, its cultural meaning and its symbolic meaning. So let's start with a cultural meaning. If you heard this in the first century, you'd understand that there were two invitations given to a banquet. First of all, the initial invitation said, will you come? And once you said yes to that, you're compelled because that tells them how many uh, animals they need to prepare, how much barbecue to make, you know, uh, how, how, much, how much to invest in this. So when, when you say, yes, I'm coming, that's the invitation, yes. And then there's a second invitation because you don't just get a time for that. On the day of the feast or the, the, uh, the banquet, then uh, word goes out, okay, it's time to come. Everything's prepared. Now you come. That's the second invitation. So we need to understand what's taking place here. He's issued an invitation to these people, and they've already said yes to that invitation, that first one. And and, and so then they didn't show up, you're going to see, they didn't show up for the second invitation. They said, no, no thanks. It doesn't happen that way. Like, it can't be in this time in the first century for this to take place. Imagine if you paid for an exorbitantly expensive banquet. I mean, it was just really stretching your budget but you wanted to bless some folks and so you had this banquet and you invited people and you dropped like $10,000 a person on this banquet. You said, are you coming? They said, yes, and the day comes and then they go, ah, I had something come up, not interested. And now you get the picture of what's taking place here because uh, this is an incredible invitation that's given. Now, the symbolic meaning of what's taking place here is not that hard to interpret, right? Jesus is sitting at a banquet with Pharisees. He's been talking about a banquet. He's been talking about the, the banquet with Messiah. And, and he's been asked this question about a banquet. And now he starts telling a story about a banquet. Listen, the master in this parable is God. This, the master is Jesus here, okay? The guy just brought up the banquet. and Here's what he's talking about. So let's look at some traits about this banquet. First of all, it was a large banquet. It was massive. God doesn't do anything halfway. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, right? When God does something, it's great. God has called us into a life that's extraordinary. It's exhilarating. I want you to notice that the host invited many. Scripture says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In this case, what we see when he invited many in the account, he's talking about the nation of Israel. And then even beyond the nation of Israel, he's invited many to the banquet. We'll never come across somebody who's not a candidate for God's forgiveness. We share the love of Christ with them. And then finally, I want you to see that the master's message in this parable is come because everything is ready. Like everything's been done. There's nothing else to do. You ever uh, go to a dinner party or invite it and then uh, they say, hey, would you mind bringing such and such? Not necessarily potluck, but you know, or you say, can I bring something? Well, that'd be great. And if you're cheap like me, you say, I'll bring the ice, something like that. I I'll bring the chips. But in this case, this banquet is so lavish, everything has been taken care of. There's nothing to bring. The master of the banquet has done it all. And it's so similar to salvation, do you see? There's nothing we can add to what God has offered us in Christ. Incidentally, there's probably somebody who came today or who's watching on, on online and, and you know in your heart of hearts you've never trusted Christ and the grace that he offers because you say well I'm just going to try to add to something and do on my own he said no I've thrown the banquet Jesus has done everything necessary for your forgiveness and salvation but don't miss the fact as Jesus is telling this parable he's also acknowledging something to the question he's saying you're right the kingdom of God is like a feast I mean it's glorious you got that part right It's amazing what God has to offer. It's it's amazing. And this is all through the scripture we see. Remember in John chapter 2, Christ's first miracle, his first sign was where? It was at a wedding feast, a banquet. They'd run out of wine. He turned the water into wine. This is a great, glorious banquet. You say, well, why would he do that? Because he's reminding us the kingdom of God is so much better than anything the world has to offer. It's glorious. There There is no way that we could approach the kingdom of God and take an honest look and say, well, that's just okay. You see, I was a minister of education at a church a few years ago, quite a few years ago, and um, it was closely affiliated with a Christian school nearby. And one of my Sunday school teachers in this church uh, was, uh, was a professor at the school. Well, he had this incredible class. I mean, it was just exploding class. He'd written books about Sunday school. By the way, and so it was interesting when I stepped in that role to just find out. Okay, what's the secret sauce in his class that he keeps bringing all these people in? So I, I, I snuck in the back and attended a couple times, and I realized about half the half his Sunday school class were not incredibly interested in what he's doing. Well, I come to find out, he was requiring that his students take his class for a part of the grade. So you can imagine, you have some people taking notes, trying to take it in. You have these other people sitting there like, okay, when is this over? You know, I just got to be here because I have to be here. And, you know, that, that is so similar to how some people approach the Christian life. Like, well, I'm here because I'm supposed to be. And you feel like you're like doing this for a grade. No. We've done it because God has given us this glorious invitation into relationship. And so the Christian life is exhilarating. It's a joy. We do it because he loves us. Do you see? So we have this. This unbeatable invitation. Here's the second truth. We have some absurd alternatives. He's saying, okay, first of all, when we talk about the priorities of the kingdom, you're not going to do any better than what God has to offer. And then he says, now, let's talk about the absurdity of any alternatives. When we really look at the things we choose instead of what God has called us to, it's sort of crazy, right? Oh. I remember a few years ago, even before that, starting going through memory lane today, I was a youth pastor at a church, and the senior pastor had allowed me to plan a series of revival meetings uh, months in advance, and so we actually secured a, a national speaker, really well-known preacher, and uh, he came in as well, and I wanted to bless this guy who was coming, so I, I found uh, another man in the church, a family who was willing to house him. We didn't have a hotel in, in that town, and so he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put him up, and so it was great. Uh, the, the, the guy who was speaking came that morning and I mean, just preached heaven down. It was awesome. I said, we'll see you tonight. It's gonna be Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday, you know, that thing. And, um, and so I went out to eat with the speaker and then I dropped him off at the house where he was gonna stay just to get a, a rest before that night. And so I introduced him to the guy who'd agreed to host him and said, hey, this is so and so. Oh, nice to meet you. Well, thanks for opening your home, no problem. And I said, man, I'll see you tonight at the services. And he goes, this is the guy that's hosting him. Oh, I'm not going. I mean, remember the speaker's like standing right here. I'm not going. You're not going? No, he, dead serious, he looks at me. He goes, America's Funniest Home Videos comes on a Sunday night. <laughs> and I, it's my favorite show. I'm like, he's standing right here. <laughs> Well, I, I, I didn't know what to say, but 30 years later, I'm still talking about it. Like, that's crazy, right? I wonder, man, when we get to heaven, if there's going to be those moments we look back and say, really? Like, America's funniest on videos in my own life. Like, I, I, I was saying to God, you know, God, I appreciate the invitation, but, I mean, these other things have come up in my life, and they seem really important, too. See, it's really important to understand. These people have accepted the first invitation to the banquet. They weren't disinterested in the Master. But they got a better offer along the way. So they're really sort of saying, God, I guess I'm translating into what it's really about. And we say, God, I, I, I think it's really interesting what you've done. I love your teachings. I'm just not that impressed by you. And so here's what happens next. Look at the invitation responses we get. Down in verse 18, we begin to see some of the most ridiculous excuses you can imagine. Verse 18, but without exception, they all began making excuses The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Listen, I don't have a degree in real estate, but I'm pretty sure that the way that should read is I'm thinking about buying some land and I need to go investigate it. You don't, you don't. You don't buy the land and then go and inspect the land, especially in the Middle East at that time where the land is so volatile. You want to know about the rain seasons there. You want to know what side of the hill it's on. I mean, that that pivotal. You want to know the history of the output of the crops on that land. You don't just say, well, I bought it. Now I'll go check it out. It's ridiculous. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. And he's also indicating here, right, that this guy is making a ridiculous claim in the name of industry. Like, oh, I'm so busy. He's trying to sound really important, but it makes no sense. So the second excuse gets even worse. Verse 19, another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. Same thing. You might want to do that before you buy the oxen, dude. But if you use oxen, it's really important that it says yoke of oxen because you buy them in pairs. Do you know why? Because if you have a, an unequal pair, then they don't pull correctly. It's worthless. So you would never buy oxen without making sure it's there. But what you do see in the ancient world is that when you talk about oxen, that is a picture of power, right? Right? He's sort of flexing his muscles. You know, I'd love to come to your deal, but I have these yoke of oxen over here that I have purchased, and I'm going to go try them out. I'm going to go do a little test drive. like, I've got something really important to do. I don't know if you understand. Thanks for the banquet. I'll be over here. If you believe it, if you can believe it, it actually gets worse. Look at the next... Verse, verse 20. And another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. You notice this dude doesn't even ask to be excused. He just says, I ain't coming. (laughs) I also want you to notice it doesn't say he has a wedding, his wedding to attend. That wouldn't make any sense. Otherwise he wouldn't have accepted the original invitation. He's just newly married, presumably. And so either he means... Sort of a graphic thing here, you know, I'm I'm gonna keep it G-rated, but like, I'm gonna go be with my wife. (laughs) Which you would never do in that culture, any culture like, hey, I I got a date tonight. Or he's saying, which is common at this time, This is maybe my first year of marriage, and, you know, I want to spend as much time with my bride as possible really enjoy our time together as we get started. Can you think of a better offer that you're going to get than a free banquet for a newlywed? Like you can go hang out and have everything paid for? That's a pretty good deal. It's, It's absurd. It's nonsense what he's saying, and so rightly what we see there is it's offensive to the host. You see, in light of the majesty of the banquet, the grace of the host, the price that had been paid, the honor of being chosen... These are ridiculous priorities, and that's what Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees and what we see even in our own lives. I wonder if when we get to heaven, we're going to look back at some of the things that distracted us on earth and say, really? Lord, I would have engaged in the habits of true fulfillment we talked about, but man, uh, the ball game was on. God, I would love to administer to the least of these, but I had this hobby that, you know, you really have to refine and hone to, to stay sharp. God, I would have loved to minister to others or, or, or fellowship with other believers, but there was a ball game my kid was in, and, you know, he might be pro one day. I'm not picking on any particular person. You could go on and on with these things, but in my own life, I'm sure there's those things that in light of the kingdom of God, I'd say, wait a second, this is upside down. An unbeatable invitation, some absurd alternatives, and the final truth. This is the best part. Amazing grace. So guess what happens next? These people wander off, they give him a no, I'm not coming to the banquet even though he's prepared the banquet and they said they'd come. Look at verse 21. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servants, told his servant, "Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind and the lame." Now a couple of things I want you to notice Verse 21 here, where it says the poor, maimed, blind, and lame, exact same phrase, same words that are used in verse 13 when he told them who they should invite to their banquet. That's not a coincidence. But I want you to notice also that this is exactly how church history played out and is playing out before our eyes. First, Christ came to Israel, right? And Israel rejected him. Those who should have recognized his coming, the priests, the Levites, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they said, no, thank you. And so he went to the poor, the maimed, the blind, the lame, the, the, the ones who were kind of the outcasts of Israel. Who were his disciples? Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, outsiders. He said, okay, I'll invite you to the banquet. And then you get in the book of Acts and what happens? As Israel largely rejects their Messiah, the risen Lord, Then we see what happens next, right, is then Peter's called to go to Cornelius in Caesarea by the sea, and he shares the gospel with the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, and they come to faith in Christ. And so that's what takes place next. Look at verse 22, because it gets even better. Master the servant said, what you ordered has been done. What's been done? Those outsiders in Israel have been invited to the banquet, and there's still room. Aren't you glad there's still room? Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Now, who are these people in the highways and hedges? These are the people outside of the city. So that must have been shocking to the Pharisees around the table. He's saying, okay, all right, there's still room. Now I want you to go to the outsiders, outsiders. Like like the people outside of Israel that never thought they'd been invited to this banquet and bring them in. Incidentally, there's a really interesting phrase here. In some translation it says, compel them. It actually says in the CSB, make them come. That's, what does that mean? It's been, I think, mistranslated through the ages at times for people to justify kind of a crusade wars to say, well, we'll just go take over the village and we'll make them be Christians. That's not what it means. Clearly, that's that's contrary to grace. So what does it mean? I'll tell you what I think it means and what a lot of scholars smarter than me believe it means. You're now sending the servant out in this parable to the highways and hedges. So these are the people that are, I mean, on the fringes who are desolate, they don't even imagine that they would ever have any hint of a relationship of any kind with this master. So the servant goes out and says, hey, you know the master up on the hill? He'd like for you to come to this banquet. And they go, no way. You must have the wrong guy. I mean, do you understand who I am and where I've been? No, I'm not coming. They're not denying that they'll come because they don't believe that the banquet's great. They're saying, I'm not worthy to come to the banquet. So when he says, make them come, he's saying, servant, I want you to tell them and help them understand, no, this banquet is actually for you. In fact, the moral of this story, do you see, is that the people who show up at the banquet and say, hey, look at me, I'm pretty good. No wonder God wants me here. I'm probably doing God a favor at being at the banquet. Jesus says, get them out of here. No. And he says, I'll tell you who I want at my banquet. The dude who says, there is no way that God would want me at his table. I want that guy. I want that lady. That, my friends, is grace. You see, Jesus said the host turned aside the people who who thought they had a competing affection, were sort of marginally interested in him. And he said, I want the one who doesn't think he's even worthy. I love how this plays out. You see, what, what it doesn't say here is Jesus saying you need to get your priorities straight because you need to be more disciplined. You need to get your priorities straight because I want you on your best behavior. You need to get your priorities straight because I want to be toward the very top of your busy schedule. No. No, he's saying, I want you to reorient your priorities because you understand how much I love you. Do you see? How much you've been given. And that changes everything about our priorities. A few years ago, Len and I had moved from one house to another. And when you do that, there's a lot of logistical things you have to do, setting up power and utilities and all that. And you have to set up a trash schedule. So we set up, it's different at every house, every neighborhood. And in this case, they said, okay, we come once a week. You need to have your trash at the curb by uh, 6 a.m., on Thursday morning. Okay, fair enough. So the first week comes by, we just been there, we put the trash out the night before, and then we heard him come about seven, that's not that unusual. And so the next Wednesday, fast forward, Wednesday night, I was speaking somewhere, got in real late, like well after midnight, and I'm exhausted. I get in bed, and my wife Lana says, hey, listen, we just, you know, when you move, you get extra trash, like you have piles of trash. And, and so she said, you know, they come, they say to have it out before six. Do you want to go ahead and move it out before you go to bed? I'm like, I'm exhausted, darling. And you know, I know from my experience that they don't come till seven. I had one week experience, by the way. (laughs) So we didn't have an argument per se, right? She just said to me, she said, let me tell you something. we got a pile of trash in the garage. And if the trash comes and and it's not out there and we have to trip over that all week long, it's going to be a long week. Do you understand? So now there's principles of manhood involved. I'm like, I ain't taking the trash out. I said, darling, I'll take it. Thank you. I got one amen from a really not very smart guy in the room. So, so we, go, we go to bed and you can probably guess what woke me up. 6.30 in the morning, I hear the hydraulics of the trash truck. And then I hear my wife say, do you hear the trash truck? <laughs> yes, I do. So I had a decision to make. I could either listen all week long or I could make a run for it. Some of you have made a run for it, right? Jump out of bed, I have on gym shorts, no shirt, no shoes, obviously. Go in the garage, pop the the garage door, grab as much as I can carry under my arm, and I grab and I've got the the bin, you know, with the wheels, and I'm running down the, the street. And, you know, I had one advantage. They had to stop like every 20 feet or so. So they had a pretty good head start, but they were stopping. I knew I'd catch them eventually. And so I'm trying to get their attention, wave them down. So I finally caught him out of breath, trying to explain to this guy, look, we just moved. And my wife said, I need to do this. And we didn't even speak the same language, but our eyes connected. And this dude was like, I got a wife too, brother. I know exactly how you feel. All right. So we get it all done. My adrenaline starts to go down. My heart rate's going down. Like, thank you, Lord. And then I turn around. I'm walking back to the house, like dragging this behind me. And it dawned on me, like everybody's up having breakfast in the neighborhood probably, looking out the window at this crazy dude that just moved in with no shirt on, his hair's out to here, barefoot. Like, I'm like, from here forward, I'm going to be like the trash dude, the garbage guy in town. That's what they're going to know me as. That's going to be my legacy here. You know, I wonder... I wonder a little closer to home if there's going to be times at the end of life where we look back and say, man, I spent way too much time chasing garbage when God had something so much better for me. And that's, I think, what Jesus is trying to show us. Do you see? In fact, this isn't just applicable to the Pharisees around the table who had rejected Christ. It's applicable to us. I think of Revelation 3.20. Jesus is speaking to the Laodiceans who are very similar in their casualness about Christ and Christianity. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, I I wish that you were hot or cold, but you're neither. So I'll spit you out of my mouth. And then he says something really interesting, an invitation. And granted, it is to a whole church, but I think it applies to our hearts because it tells us something about Christ's heart. Revelation 3.20, see, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus doesn't barge. He said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. I have a banquet. I'd love to have a banquet with you. I'd love to share a banquet with you and he with me. Isn't that cool? So as we think about our priorities, I'm sure that there's probably some here, and you're saying, man, pastor, this is great for those who, it's not too late for, but I mean, you don't understand my shameful past and all this stuff, and so I I don't have those priorities anymore, and it's too late. And you need to know, on the authority of the word of God, Jesus wants to have a banquet with you. You say, oh man, I I wish I'd heard this 30 years ago, but right now, I mean, just caught up in all this stuff, and I'm so busy. Listen to me. The God of the universe, he wants to have a banquet with you. And the Lord is inviting us to take those unimportant things that we place at the top of our list, if we're honest, and lay them at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, would you just reorient my priorities? Not so I'd get my act together, but so I'd recognize the awesome invitation that I've been given. And then put everything in the right perspective, you see. Would you bow with me for prayer? church we're going to pray and then have an opportunity to respond we'll sing a song of proclamation there'll be several here who'd be honored to pray with you and for you i wonder whether somebody came today and you know you've never trusted christ as savior and lord i have a question for you why not today likewise i know there's some in the room like me who have trusted christ but you know honestly there are times when we lose sight of the kingdom and our priorities just turn upside down and the lord's inviting you to look to him and not necessarily to forsake everything else, but but then to live according to that ultimate priority of love for him and walking with him and see how it changes everything. Would you bring your priorities to the King today? So God, would you speak to us? Thank you for your word, God. Would you speak to us now? Would you bring us to a place of decision? We ask this in Jesus' name.